All right, good morning, everyone. We are going to pick back up on page 54 and 55 in Martin Chemnitz in Caridian. We've been talking about the Decalogue and we've been talking about the times in which the gospel ought to be preached and the times in which the law ought to be preached. And to whom? So on page 54, at the answer of question 86, we saw Chemnitz make this distinction between a Pharisaic heart and also a secure Epicurean heart. So he writes, the gospel is to be preached to the poor, namely those whose hearts have first been terrified and broken by the preaching of the law. For a Pharisaic heart, swelled with pride in works of its own righteousness, thinks that it has need of neither the preaching of grace nor of Christ. And a secure or Epicurean heart is not concerned about those things and neither desires nor seeks them. Therefore, the way is to be prepared for Christ the Lord through the law. So both the Pharisaic, the self-righteously proud heart, and the libertine, spiritually unconcerned heart, need to be prepared first by the law before they're ready for the gospel. We'll pick back up in these pages in just a moment. Let's begin with our invocation and opening prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, Chemnitz gives us those two different diagnoses of the sinful human condition. And in both cases, it would be wrong to lead with the gospel. We must lead with the law so that it prepares hearts for the proper work of the gospel, which then can convert them. The law has to come in like a wrecking ball and destroy that Phariseeism and that Epicureanism within. And then on question 87, and I don't intend to revisit this to any depth or detail, but we looked at the error of Agricola in the 16th century. This idea that, well, we don't really need the law if we have the passion of Jesus because the passion of Jesus has all we need of the law within it. A similar, more modern argument is we don't really need to say anything other than you are forgiven because inherent within you are forgiven is you're a sinner. It's a very similar argument. Chemnitz historically rejects the first, and he would certainly reject the latter, as his forebears do, simply because you can see that this is not in keeping with the scriptures, not in keeping with the giving of the law. So the law is necessary, not only because it indicates our sins, but also because it restrains the sinful nature that remains within and instructs us ultimately set free from 
the power of sin in Christ Jesus that instructs us ultimately and guides us ultimately into the way that is pleasing to God. Okay. (laughs) Does this mean that we're justified by the law? Question 88, he says, of course not. And then question 89, um, what about Deuteronomy 30, Matthew 19, Luke 10, Romans 2 and Romans 7? The law of God requires pure, holy, and altogether absolute and perfect righteousness. If one has and renders this, he shall doubtless be righteous thereby and saved in the sight of God according to the promises of the law. But that no one is justified or saved by the law is not the fault of the law, as though it teaches either wicked or imperfect works. But it is because the law is weakened by the flesh, which cannot keep the law perfectly. So we talked on that point too, and just worth briefly reiterating that in contemporary Lutheranism, there's again this sort of allergy to the law, that the law itself is somehow evil or bad or opposed to the gospel. And that's simply not biblically true. It's our flesh unable to keep the law that is the problem. So the law is good and holy and just and spiritual. Our flesh is precisely not. So there's no salvation for us in and through the law. The gospel must come and do that apart from the works of the law. But again, the idea that we sort of badmouth the law is alien to these scriptures cited and alien to Chemnitz and historic Lutheranism. Okay, and then that takes us into the new material at 90. Are there any questions, anything rattling around unsettled? I see one hand pop up. Are we running a microphone? If No, okay, I'll do my best to uh, restate. Yeah, there is, this, there is this frequent expression that no one in the world is without the law, so everybody knows the law, so nobody needs any law. Everybody's just out there already feeling self-condemned by the law, and so we need to go in with the gospel. Now, this plays off of the Pauline idea that the law of God is written into the heart with even those who don't have the Ten Commandments proper, their conscience accuses or excuses them. So this contemporary Lutheran view, by contemporary I mean it really has its origin seemingly in the 20th century and then kind of continues in terms of popular theology today, is, well, everybody's out there overburdened by the law, and then you get all this nonsense like big L law, small L law, everybody, everything's just law, 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 and everybody's languishing and, and crushed under the law. And, I mean, the, these are people who don't go out often. Who can? <laughs> maybe they don't own TVs, I don't know. But that is not how at least the American populace is go out in the streets and look at people and talk to people. We're here in Southern California. Go out to the beach and look around and see if everyone is crushed under the weight of the law. See if if the sufferings, the curse, have them all doubting that there's a good and gracious God out there. I mean, in fact, in the popular piety here on the West Coast, you find exactly the opposite. 
I'm good, he's good, everything's good. But you need a savior. Okay, well, I guess I'll take him as like a last-ditch insurance policy as long as I don't have to go to church or actually become a Christian. (laughs) You know, there's this idea out there that, hey, I don't really need any grace or mercy. God is already good to me. And, oh, do you have any sins? Well, sure, I haven't done everything perfect. No one has. Now, I mean, all of this classically understood from a Lutheran perspective, but also just from a Christian perspective, requires a preaching of the law, a preaching of repentance. And of course, you can see this even in Jesus' own ministry, even though the cultural context is so much different. And we're dealing with people that don't have aspirin and anesthesia and a very developed surgical process. But you still see the same spiritual dynamics at play, the Pharisaism, which we see here, right from the Pharisees themselves. Look, we're going to get into heaven because we're Abraham's offspring, because we are righteous relative to other people. We're the good guys. God's a good guy. We're in. I mean, that, that is still around today. That gets broken not by the gospel. Jesus doesn't go around forgiving the Pharisees all the time. Hey, just want just to let you guys know you're forgiven. <laughs> and then likewise, uh, you have the same libertinism, although it takes on, you know, again, different forms, but you've got the tax collectors and the sinners as a group to whom Jesus is ministering. And to these also, he's speaking and proclaiming the law in such a way that they're acknowledging their need for him, for a savior. So an an example of this would be, remember the woman by the well in John 4. She's, I, I forget, what does she have? She has five husbands, a live-in boyfriend, that's the sixth, all right, and Jesus, and she's not exactly going, oh, you're the Messiah, thank goodness, I'm crushed under the weight of my own sins and my own inability to keep the sixth commandment, uh, and Jesus just says, hey, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd like to let you know you're forgiven. No, he calls her out in this. He reveals to her her stand, you know, go and call your husband, he says. <laughs> I don't have a husband. Right you are that you don't have a husband. You've had five, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. So there's Jesus unto a more libertine kind of person, an Epicurean type of soul, uh, using the law to prepare for the gospel that he ultimately preaches himself as the one who gives living water. And she believes and is converted, but not before her heart is first prepared. So again, you see these spiritual dynamics in every age. And so you, and you, you see right from the source, our Lord, his apostles, all the way up through all the ages, using the law and the gospel, using repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and using them in a certain order. The contemporary idea that everybody's languishing under the law and languishing in some sort of spiritual depression and all we have to do is go out there and say you're forgiven is like the fantasy of people who don't read the scriptures very much. Maybe they read Luther more than the scriptures. And then the fantasy of people who don't go out out and talk to other people very much or aren't very observant of human nature.
Please. And then in Romans, Paul really, you know, taps down on all the sin. You know, nobody is righteous, no, not one. Mm. And all this stuff, he goes on and on, Mm. explaining our sinfulness after he's made the natural law argument. Yeah, right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, his, his point isn't in saying that God has written the law on the hearts and minds and the conscience accuses or excuses isn't to say, therefore, the law is not necessary to be preached or repentance isn't necessary to be preached. His point is that they're without excuse. I mean, because we've mangled that theology and misused and abused it, we've actually also, as Lutherans, suffered, contemporary Lutherans, suffered the loss of what Paul's really getting at. And that's mangled and distorted other things, particularly the way we view, you know, it's kind of like this idea of like, well, only, only some are saved. Oh, is that a problem with God? Maybe that's a problem with God. I mean, Paul's whole thrust and argument is that there's not a single person, even apart from the gospel, who is without excuse. Every last created human being, this is Paul's argument, has the knowledge of God and represses it, lies to himself in unrighteousness deceives himself and allows himself to be deceived until he worships the creation rather than the creator and then progresses down this slope of the creator finally giving him over to all of these unnatural lusts and sins, finally resulting in the kind of debased mind we see all around us. So because we've gotten this thing distorted at the source, we've lost maybe this isn't the best term for it, but we've lost the high ground as Christians and it affects our ability to bear witness to other people because we come up to them now like used car salesmen. Oh, don't you pretty please want this forgiveness of sins that I have in Christ Jesus? No. Okay, have a lovely day. As opposed to Paul saying, you're without excuse, oh man. You know your creator. You're lying to yourself. And you're lying that you think he isn't righteous. And if you think he's all good with you, then why is it that you suffer? Why is it that your body decays? Why is it that you will end up the food for worms in a grave with your loved ones weeping and nothing that you've worked to earn any longer belonging to you? See, that's the high ground that we've already seeded because we've botched this whole frame and no longer understand Paul on his own terms. But that's the way we ought to speak to unbelievers. Not pretty please buy this uh, product I've got for you, this used car called the gospel, but you're doomed and it's your fault because you are without excuse. You know as well as I do that there is a God and you're accountable to him and you're ignoring this. That's a little bit more of effective of a message to grasp somebody's attention and to refuse to let them off the hook. That would be a much more accurate use of that Romans theology. Is that not exactly what Paul's doing? Rhetorically, he's saying, I don't care if you're a Jew or a Gentile, you are completely on the hook. You have been an enemy of God. You have repressed him. 
And then, of course, the great pivot, yet while you were still his enemies, God loved you in such a way that he gave his only begotten son. So that's the whole thrust of Romans, as opposed to this idea that, well, they've already got the law, so we don't need to do the law. We just need to come up with the forgiveness of sins, which, you know, then you get all the salesman shenanigans that have been invented in the 20th and 21st centuries. I just wanted to say thank you for spending so much time on right and wrong ways of witnessing. This is really loud. (laughs) Um, Because that's our initial inclination, is to, when we learn something or when God reveals truth to us, we want to run out to everybody and tell everybody what we've learned. But in fact, it's not our responsibility to actually make the faith grow. You know, in the men's Bible study, I'm just starting to listen to the classes and a lot about the seed goes in the ground and we don't do it. Mm-hmm. So hearing that along with what you're talking about, having different ways of approaching people and then just leave it there, speak truth and lay it down. Yeah. And that's it. I mean, that's very comforting because I'm not the savior. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm glad you resonate with that. Um, I, you know, I do too. When you find what you find in the scriptures is a wholesomeness and a clarity and a truth that just is so much better than the contem- contemporary Christianity in the West. And you can see that we really need an ongoing reformation, as every age does, by rediscovering what the word itself says. And, I, and, I, and again, I don't mean this in any artificial sense. I mean, we all share the gospel with the people God brings to us in our lives including our own spouse, our own children, our own parents, our aunts and uncles, co-workers, friends, neighbors, whatever the case may be. It's not as if we have to go out on a street corner and ring a bell and do this kind of stuff. But, uh, and I'm still in process, to tell you the truth, because I'm recovering from you know, the nonsense of our age. And that is just to regain this sense that I mean, it sounds so obvious when you say it, that God has the high ground, and we as his ambassadors and messengers have the high ground as well. That is to say that we're not out there selling anything. We're not out there trying to shoehorn people into this need for the forgiveness of sins. Our primary proclamation to people, our leading proclamation to whether they're Pharisaical or Epicurean in nature is you are accountable to God, O oh man, and you know it, and stop deceiving yourself. Right. And in due time, then, opportunity to speak the gospel comes about. Okay, let me, let me see, stop there. I see a couple of hands, please. Yeah, you've already just um, indirectly addressed what I was thinking about, but as a Lutheran, I love the Lutheran tradition. I'm learning to really love it. But I've always had a struggle of, evangelism. Do you have any suggestions? I know you just said that just to present the truth and let them respond. But I've been from other traditions where you, you need to speak the truth so the, um, the Bible is heard by the speaking, uh, of mm-hmm. speaking of the word. Any suggestions of how that evangelism may look like um, from a Lutheran perspective? 
Yeah, I mean, Lutheranism, to the best of my knowledge, hasn't well-defined those parameters. Generally speaking, it's viewed vocationally. So within your vocation, within your role, so we're going back to the uh, small catechism here, and we're thinking, are you a father? Are you a spouse? Are you a child? Those are all vocations. Are you a to translate business owner or employee, those are vocations. That's your pri- those are your primary roles in this world. Seek to share the law and the gospel, the, law, the gospel in the wide sense, as you have opportunity within those relationships, within those vocations. That's the primary way. Sometimes this gets summarized in a kind of cute statement, sheep beget sheep. <laughs> And that simply means that you don't need some kind of organized campaign or canned speech or program bought from Concordia Publishing House in order to be witnessing. Okay, but I did start by saying it's not well-defined, the parameters. Are we precluded by organizing as a congregation and doing some intentional outreach, knocking on neighbors' doors or, you know, formally or informally trying to be present outside of a grocery store or having a Bible study that's pretty obvious in the midst of a coffee shop or something like that. These sorts of intentional ideas of penetrating the community in order to provide opportunities to share the gospel. I mean, no, within Lutheranism, that's all well and good. Go for it. I think the key being, as long as it's not turned into some kind of law, whereby individual Christians are made to feel guilty or insufficient or second class if they're not gated or interested to do this kind of ministry or this kind of evangelism. So I don't know if that helps, but that's probably the best I can do in short time. Uh, When you were speaking about Romans and so forth, I thought of the play uh, Death of a Salesman. And I started realizing what I should have realized earlier. The name of the main character is Will E. Lowman. Mm. <laughs> I'm thinking we should be, I know at issues they're going to be having uh, the man, a man from Babylon B, and he talks about how we have t- uh, avenues in our culture to present scripture. And this is, we have to work on our culture and our culture used to cooperate with the gospel and stuff now it goes against it but preparing the ground for people to see you know through plays or art or song or whatever this concept you know dealing with it Hmm. yeah well thank you for that commentary yeah and just to my point again just to make abundantly clear is I am in agreement with Chemnitz, I'm in agreement with the Lutheran Reformers, and they are in agreement, as they take great pains to demonstrate, with the small C Catholic Church of all times and all places. In other words, this is what we find our Lord Jesus and his apostles and the Orthodox Fathers of the Christian faith doing all the way up to the present Within modern Western Lutheranism, we've had in the last hundred or so years less, a little bit less, 
we have had major aberrations in our understanding of these things. So we're just trying to recover the classic understanding and continue in that line of faithful confessional Lutheranism. Okay, so we continue then with Chemnitz at question 90. But Paul testifies, Romans 7.22, that a man reborn through the Holy Spirit renders not only outward, but also inward obedience toward the law of God. Can the reborn then be justified by the law? All right, so this question is predicated upon an observation that St. Paul makes the statement in Romans 7 that once a man is reborn of the Holy Spirit, he begins to offer inward obedience toward the law of God. So what's, being, what's going on there is a Pharisee can render outward obedience to the law of God externally. This is why Jesus calls them a whitewashed sepulcher on the outside. They're clean. Externally, they live according to the law. But internally are dead men's bones. Internally, there's no keeping of the law whatsoever. All the intention to keep the law, in fact, proceeds in one way or another from wickedness from death and sin, whether that's a comparative righteousness or a self-righteousness before God or whatever else the case may be. But once a man is renewed by the Holy Spirit, he's brought to faith by the preaching of Christ, he's renewed by the Holy Spirit, he begins, as St. Paul says in Romans 7, to exhibit inward obedience. The heart changes. Whereas the first commandment is impossible for the Pharisee, that you would fear, love, and trust in God above all things, for the man renewed by the Spirit of God, he begins, however weakly, however much his own sinful flesh contradicts him, nonetheless, he and the new man begins to fear, love, and trust in God. It's a profound change in the heart of a person. All right, that theology is the foundation for the question that Kempnitz really wants to address. Since this is the case, can the reborn then be justified by the law? Kempnitz's answer, the divine law in the Decalogue requires not incomplete, mutilated, or imperfect, but such pure and perfect obedience that it is rendered perfectly from the whole heart, from the whole soul, and without any evil lust according to the first and last commandment, which two commandments Augustine learnedly gathers determine the limits of the perfection that the law requires. So just to pause there, just push your finger real quick. So this is a great point. And I first kind of ran into this myself when I was really looking uh, very closely at Romans 7. So the two commandments, there's, there's kind of an irony Um, in these two commandments. But the two most penetrating of the commandments are the first and the tenth. Okay, The one in regard to like whatever you fear, love, and trust, that is your God. Okay, So there's an irony there that in the first place, any fear, love, and trust in God whatsoever is a profound miracle and is proof of regeneration and the Holy Spirit. 
But simultaneously, that commandment shows how impossible the law is to keep in perfection. Because no Christian, no matter how much he fears, loves, and trusts in God, and no matter how much that's evidence of the renewal of the Holy Spirit within him, all that's absolutely true, the Christian simultaneously, maybe even paradoxically, realizes how far he is from fulfilling that commandment perfectly. And the Tenth Commandment has a a similar kind of dynamic, but namely, and I've said this before, that the commandments on coveting, that's really what we have in mind, so the Ninth and the Tenth as we order them, don't end with a whimper but with a bang. And that bang is to show us that covetousness, our constant and continual dissatisfaction, shows us how deep and pernicious sin is. I mean, Paul even has this statement that seems to say, coveting is so natural to me as a fallen human being that I didn't even realize it was a sinful component within me until the law came and said, thou shalt not covet. So that's what Chemnitz is doing here by the, by the 10th commandment. Now, ironically, realizing how pernicious this is, is in fact a fruit of the Spirit. There's kind of the paradox on this commandment, that if you realize how interpenetrating and how deep the disease and sickness of coveting goes, that's already proof of the Holy Spirit and renewal within you. An unspiritual man is blind to that. So, though, also, and to Chemnitz's point here, the first and the tenth commandments especially function to show that we can by no means be justified by the law, even as renewed Christians. So, we don't hold up our sanctification before God and say, here, on the basis of my sanctification, I should be justified. All right, picking back up with Chemnitz's argument, which, as you can see, flows from Paul through Augustine and uh, up into Lutheranism. That's been his argument so far. And he continues, But the complaints of Paul and David testify that also the saints and those reborn by the Spirit of God in this life are able neither to attain nor render that perfection. All right, Romans 7 and Psalm 32 quoted. On the next page, Psalm 130 and Psalm 143 quoted. So those would be places to go look if you're doubtful of this doctrine. Kenneth finishes with this word, and the sentence of the law remains unchanged. James 2.10 and Galatians 3.10. So again, just because we're renewed by the Spirit and begin to fulfill the law doesn't mean we turn and seek to be justified by that law. That's impossible. I hope that that makes perfect sense to, to you. I hope that that's absolutely clear. So... Is there an ontological difference? An ontology is a being. Is there a difference in being? Is there a difference in ontological righteousness? Is there a difference in actual righteousness between an unbeliever and a believer? 
Absolutely. An unbeliever is dead in his trespasses. A believer has been made alive with Christ Jesus. The difference between an unbeliever and a believer is the difference between a dead corpse and a living person. That's a difference in ontology. Can a dead person do anything good? Nope. Can a living person? Yup. Here's the difference between a bad tree that can only bear bad fruit and a good tree that can only bear good fruit, as our Lord says. Now, does the living person, does the good tree bearing good fruit, does that status justify a person before God? No. It's not that status. It's the blood of Jesus. It's the forensic declaration of the forgiveness of sins, of the righteousness of Christ, which is the only perfect righteousness there is, the only perfect tree with perfect fruit, that righteousness being credited to us freely. That's the only righteousness we have that justifies But we're not thereby going to deny that there is an ontological difference between a believer and an unbeliever. There is. That there's a difference in righteousness between one and the other. There is. Jesus himself says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So there is an ontological righteousness that is the fruit of faith that is as different as light is from darkness or life is from death. So those are important truths for us to ground ourselves in that come from the scriptures. And just as they come from the scriptures, they will help us understand the scriptures in many and various other places. Okay, so at the end of the answer to question 90, the sentence of the law remains unchanged. Even a renewed, regenerate Christian can't be justified by the law. So then question 91, why then is the law to be taught and what is its legitimate use? Again, I hope this is starting to get a little redundant. I hope you already could formulate your own answer to this. Chemnitz breaks his answer into two parts. The first of those parts is as follows, that people might learn from the law seriously to acknowledge both their manifold sins and the judgment of God against sins, namely that they are subject to divine wrath and the curse or eternal condemnation unless they are set free through Christ so that they thus turn themselves away from sins fear the wrath of God, and seek the true physician who alone can heal our weaknesses. In other words, the, if I could be so bold as to summarize, the law of God keeps us clinging to Christ because the law of God shows us that we are sinners in need of a Savior. All right, the second point drawn out by Chemnitz is as follows, that the law written by the finger of God might be for the reborn a sure norm and rule showing which works God has prepared in which he wants the reborn to walk and to serve him. And then quotations from Deuteronomy 12, Ezekiel 20, Romans 13, Colossians 2. All right, so you probably remember from 
catechism or new members class, this threefold distinction of the law, that the law has three uses or functions as a curb, a mirror, and a guide. And if you look carefully at these two answers, what you'll see is in the first point, you'll see the curb and the mirror both folded in there. The law still functions for Christians to curb our sinful nature so that it doesn't have free reign to do whatever it wants to do. And undoubtedly, you've recognized that the sinful nature loves the gospel too. The sinful nature loves to hear that God forgives all sins. Because what does the sinful nature like to do? Sin! He likes to forgive sins. I I like to sin. Match made in heaven. So this is why Luther strictly warns in his Galatians lectures that we must never allow the gospel into the flesh. As soon as you allow the gospel into the flesh, it's antinomianism. It's wild time. It's using the gospel as an opportunity for sin denounced by the scripture. Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. So the law is for the flesh, even amongst Christians, to restrain the flesh. That's the curb. And then to drive us to our Savior. That's the mirror. Here's what you really look like. Even though you're renewed by the Holy Spirit, here's what you still look like, and here's why you still need to cling to Jesus, because... His righteousness and his righteousness alone justifies you. So those two points, the curb and the mirror, are collapsed under one. And then last, the guide. And that is, since Christ is setting me free from the... I mean, he has set me free, full stop, from the consequences of my sins, the eternal consequences of my sins. He's justified me before God. How then would he have me live? How then should I live... That's how the law functions as a guide. And in this sense, it's kind of paradoxical to think of, but the law actually sets you free (laughs) from your own notions of what pleases God. I've been justified by grace through faith on account of Christ. What should I do now? Go out into a cave with a camel hair shirt and starve myself and pray all the time? Is that what pleases him? What pleases him? Should I, since I'm now married to Christ, divorce my wife, leave my children behind? After all, my, my daughters and sons are those who do the will of my father. Should I abandon my earthly family and embrace my heavenly family? That may sound bizarre to you, but this was an actual, these th- problems were real problems in the <laughs> century church that Paul has to address in his writings. And the answer is no, don't do that. Hey, since salvation is completely free and everything's about receiving the gifts, then I should uh, no longer work to provide for my family, right? I'll just embrace the church and whatever it provides for me. These are things that have to be rejected by St. Paul in the first century and by the other apostles. And this is why we need the law as a guide. No, no. These are the things, this is the way of life that is pleasing to the Father. 
Okay. So the Ten Commandments are set before us in order to liberate us from all the other nonsense we might dream up that is, in fact, other than or contrary to God's will for us as his children. All right, so if you want to read about this, you can look at the formula of Concord. I think it's the sixth article on the uh, third use of the law, and you'll see that it has this very same functioning and formal Lutheran theology in our confessions uh, that you find here. So the law written by the finger of God is for the reborn. That's for us a sure norm and rules showing which works God has prepared. And again, I mean, this is absolutely essential because I have heard pastors say, well, we're free in the gospel, so get divorced if you want. You're forgiven. We're free in the gospel, so uh, just be sorry for your sins after you do them, and it's okay. Wow. Something's gotten twisted there. Majorly. And what has got twisted is we've lost this second part, this third use of the law, namely that the law is now for us Christians a norm and a rule. Are we justified by it? Nope. Are we condemned by it? Nope. Not in this use, not in this distinction. We use it as a rule and guide, as that which liberates us from our own stupid, sinful ideas about what's pleasing to God. In the context of being being set free, um, uh, Jesus talks about this in John eight. Uh, he, he talks about us being uh, we we have been a slave to sin, mm-hmm. and we're set free. free. But my question is: um, Are we now slaves to Christ? And yes. in the context of this guide and rule, you know, basically the law. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a great point you're bringing up. It really is that simple. You can conceive of it in different ways, but maybe for our purposes here, you're either a slave to Christ or you're a slave to yourself. And because a Christian, reborn, has these two aspects, a new man and an old man, we're always in danger of that old man sort of taking over and confusing the whole person in such a way that the whole person ends up serving the old man and is a slave to the old man. In fact, turns Christ as a servant of sin, turns Christ into a servant of sin and a servant of the old man, right? So this is, pay really close attention to how Lutherans articulate freedom. (laughs) The gospel sets you free. Your next question should be, in what sense? Because frequently, it's unthinkable what they say. The gospel will set you free from the law. You mean I don't need to obey the Ten Commandments? You're free from the law. Did I stutter? (laughs) So what am I free to do? Well, what do you want to do? Anything I want to do? That's now blessed by the gospel. That's now blessed by Christ. So you you should pay very careful attention 
if somebody if someone says the gospel has set you free, set you free into what? Set you free in what sense? Now, how is freedom articulated biblically, or how would I answer that question if I said the gospel has set you free, and you said rightfully and truly as you should, Pastor Rody, what do you mean the gospel sets us free? I would say the gospel sets us free from the condemnation of the law. The gospel sets us free from the need to justify ourselves via the law. The gospel sets us free from the power of sin, death, and the devil. The gospel sets us free to pursue the eternal law that God sets before us as his children, that we, like children, might learn to become like our Father who is in heaven. These are the things that the gospel sets us free from and sets us free to. But very often, articulated, you just get this sense of like, well, it sets us free entirely, which is simply a deceit that allows us to fall back into being a slave to ourselves. I'll do whatever I want to do. That's what freedom means. No, that's actually, in fact, the definition of slavery. That's the incurvatus in se, the self enslaved to itself. The very thing from which Christ has set us free is now being stated as the end goal of that freedom. It's absurd. I mean, it's, the, it's like a judo flip straight from the devil. So free from and free to are the most important aspects of articulating gospel freedom. And we, sorry, one more point. I know I just keep droning on here. I apologize. But then that is, that freedom is paradoxically slavery to Christ. That with our freedom, we're free from the devil, free from the world, free from ourselves. And now we are bound as slaves to Christ. The only alternative to being a slave to Christ is to go back to Slavery to ourselves, the world, and the devil. That's it. You're a slave of one or the other. Please. Yeah, this probably was, is misconstrued um, by our culture, but it's also it's a freedom not to sin, correct? Absolutely. Because without the Holy Spirit, we have no choice but to sin. Correct. Absolutely. Apart from faith, all is sin. But in faith and renewed by the Holy Spirit we suddenly have set before us these things that are pleasing to God. And Chemnitz's point would be like, well, what things are pleasing to God? Well, the Ten Commandments. These are the norm and rule of the Christian life, showing which works God has prepared in which he wants the reborn to walk and to serve him. And again, even though I'm not going and quoting these scriptures, maybe I should, but I will simply just point them out to you, that Chemnitz is here citing Deuteronomy 12.32, Ezekiel 20.19, Romans 13.8, and Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. So don't take this as like the wit and wisdom of Rhodey or Chemnitz. This is straight from the Holy Scriptures, Old and New Testaments alike. Okay, anything else? That brings us to a close on this section, particular to the Decalogue and its use. And we're going to jump into sin, something we... Should all be experts in, but ironically, we're not. <laughs> oh, is there a hand over here, please? It, did you want to? Did you want to make comment on that? Just before real quick, we move he on? brought up the now we're free to not sin. So, if the law is continuing to show us more and more and more of our sinfulness mm-hmm. as we're 
trying to not sin. So these things are happening in concert with each other so that we don't get too prideful or fall into despair. If you're in, engaged in that struggle mm-hmm. and your concern turns towards, is God pleased with me? Mm-hmm. What would you say to someone that's concerned with, you know, I'm continuing to fail, I'm trying, but it's hard, you know, all that stuff. I mean, is God pleased with us simply because we now belong to him and your intention is enough, mm-hmm. even though you're going to continue working? How do we think about that? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. What you find in scripture is a distinction So I'm going to be doing a little bit of paraphrasing here just for the sake of brevity. But the point being, there are two different senses in which we are pleasing to God. This is directly analogous, if you're a parent, to two different ways in which you're pleased by your children. I'll use myself as an example because I have two children. and It's just easier that way. Am I pleased to have my kids be my kids? Absolutely. I love them as my children, no matter what. And they could do terrible, horrible, heinous things. They're still my kids, and I'm not going to abandon them. And I mean, even to take it to some ludicrous extreme, as I'm, as I'm sitting there testifying against them in the court of law, you know, because that's what's right and just to do, I love them with all my heart, and I am still, in this sense, pleased to have them as my children. Now, the analogy to that, so much more perfect and pure, is that God is perfectly pleased with us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us of all our sins. He has baptized you and is perfectly and irrevocably pleased to have you as his children. And you can find many scripture verses that use this this or, or, or similar language talking about how God is perfectly and completely pleased to have us as his children on account of Christ Jesus. Make sense? That's the first kind of being pleased. And it never goes away. Even, think of the prodigal son who completely abandons his father. Even when he comes back, the father is pleased to have him back. Okay. Now, the second kind of being pleased is, and you see this also in the scriptures, Paul will frequently say we should do X, Y, and Z that we might be pleasing unto him. And this makes perfect sense, again, if you're, if you're a parent. Okay? Now, I'm very pleased to have my son and my daughter as my kids, but am I pleased with them if they lie, if they steal, if they cheat, if they're violent? No. I'm pleased to have them as my children, but precisely because I'm pleased to have them as my children, I'm not pleased with their behavior. And I'm going to correct that behavior, not because I hate them, but precisely because I love them. I'm going to discipline them. I want them to be better. Ultimately, I want them to be like me, (laughs) right? In this sense, I'm recognizing things, you know, and I might even recognize in them things that are in me. And I'm fighting against those things in me, and I want to teach them to fight against those things in them, right? Okay, so um, the point is I'm, I'm, but let's flip it now. What What if they do what's right? What if they lift up a classmate? What if they stand up for someone's reputation? What if they return something that was stolen? What if they do good? Am I pleased with them in, a, in this secondary sense? Absolutely. We might even go get ice cream, right? Okay, so that's the analogy then. 
you can think of St. Paul saying, remember, this is 1 Corinthians 10, remember those whom God brought through the waters of the Red Sea, baptized into Moses, baptized into the cloud, and remember how God gave them spiritual food and spiritual drink. Was he pleased to have them as his children? Yes. But then Paul goes on to say, God was nonetheless displeased with them because they turned to idolatry and sexual immorality, worshiping the golden calf. These things were written as an example unto us. So see how God was pleased and then displeased, and displeased with them in such a way that they faced this temporal consequence of not that generation didn't get to go into the promised land. Now these things are written for us as an example, St. Paul says, which is to say then that as we, we recognize that we're always and irrevocably God's children, and he's pleased to have us as children, even if we're, we've made a complete disaster of everything, even if we're the prodigal son on steroids and ten times worse, he's still, because he is love and is our father, he's pleased to have us as his children. But that doesn't mean he's pleased by our disobedience or our rebellion or the ways we're hurting ourselves or him or others. He's not pleased by any of that. The flip side is he promises that he is pleased with us no matter how small the good is that we do. Okay? That's, why, that's why Jesus says not even a cup of cold water given to a little child in my name will go unrewarded in the kingdom of heaven. That's why there's all this admonition to do good unto others who can't repay you because your heavenly Father will repay and reward you in heaven. He's so pleased by the, the, the good fruit that we bear, by the right things that we do, no matter how infinitesimally small and seemingly worthless there are. He's, he's a proud dad, and he's so pleased to see that, that he promises to reward it in this life and the next. And that is written, by the way, all the way through every commandment in the large catechism and Luther's explanation, how when we live in these ways, it is pleasing to the Father, and he promises to reward us in this life and in the next. All manner of temporal and eternal blessings um, for those who uh, keep his commandments. You can think of the close of the commandments in just that way. So those are the two senses in which he's pleased. And I mean, just, just to be transparent, I mean, as a son of the Father, there are times that I know I've displeased him. I've displeased myself. <laughs> Done something stupid, regrettable. I'm ashamed of myself. I know that he's disappointed in me in that sense. Okay, now the devil comes swooping in at that moment and goes... Ah, see, he doesn't want you to be his child anymore. See, you've disappointed him so deeply, he's no longer pleased to have you as his son. And that's where you have to say, wait a minute. No, no, no. He's absolutely and always pleased to have me. Mess up though I am. (laughs) As his child, he's baptized me. He never goes back on that. He's the father of every prodigal. He will have mercy on all who call upon his name. And I do. So I know he continues to be pleased with me as his son. But I'm going to let that disappointment sit and simmer a little because that's going to motivate me to make some big changes. And that's going to motivate me to not fall so easily into this regrettable sin again in the future. Right? So I think that, that I just use that as an example 
It's not the only example. It's not even some giant template. It's just an example of how this works itself out in our lives as Christians. Please. But these good works that we do to please him, I think it's important, at least my perspective, is to understand that it's, it's something we don't will up on our own. It's, it's, it's Ephesians 2.10 says that we were created before the foundation of the world to do good works in and through him. And he gives us this new heart and this desire that we really don't even understand. Uh, and, and these good works that we do are he's joining us in that or he's is that true yes absolutely you're doing a fantastic job of of describing that yeah i mean right after this whole um you have been saved by grace through faith apart from christ and this not of your own you know or i mean through christ apart from your works this not of your own doing this you know ephesians 2 8 and 9 that we all quote and all know and you know and by right after that right on the heels of that is as you've uh, paraphrased so wonderfully um, that he has made us his own that we might uh, walk in his ways that which he um, wills and does in and through us and these good works that have been set before us from the foundation of the world. Now I think what Paul's really talking about there is I mean yeah there is maybe a sense of like sort of destiny or fate or God planning these things out for us. I, I wouldn't necessarily deny that but I think primarily what Paul has in mind there are living our lives vocationally through the Ten Commandments. Those are the eternal things. Now, why do I say that? Because by the end of Ephesians, he's laying out the booklet of vocations. He's laying out the house toffle, the house table text par excellence. He does it in other places too, where he lays out this is what it means to be a husband or a wife or parents or children. He lays that all out. And we keep that in, those, those are precisely the works that he is working to will and to do in and through us. Make sense? Yeah. Thank you for that. Okay, we, I know we've, um, well, good. No, this is fine. It's fine to, to stop here. So next week, we'll simply pick up with the topic of sin on page 56, and we'll get into the distinctions of original and actual and mortal and venial and what do these mean and how do we think about them the lord be with you